Yeah, we've Julian on the brown note in uh, Movie Madness. Uh, could be reviewing five films in one week, I think. After a lot of albums. This is um, Firestarter, a review of Firestarter, a film proudly sitting on 11% on Rotten Tomatoes, absolutely crucified by the critics. Um, this is, uh, the next film I'm going to review is Morbius, and they're both sort of symptomatic of this where we're at now in filmmaking. The relentlessness of repackage, reboot, remake, um, and that we get, I've got loads of lorikeets outside now, but you'd rather watch those. Actually, I'd rather watch those than fire. No, I wouldn't. Um, where we're, remake, we're making like these new adaptations of things, or remakes of things that were never great in the first place. Firestarter, the book by Stephen King, was never really a major Stephen King novel. Though it has um, a lot of elements that are classic Stephen King, um, with regards to, you know, children with powers and, and, you know, these secret societies of people that exist in the margins that have got connections through their powers, like in The Shining. Um, and a lot of those elements are sort of uh, integral to a lot of Stephen King's mythology universe. You could imagine these characters traipsing around in the same world as, you know, the kids from it or something like that. Um, but the 1984 original film was never great. It was not something that was screaming out to be remade. And yet here we are. And the, um, I think at the time, there was another film that came out called The Fury, which I actually remember a lot more. They, there was a lot of these sort of late 70s films, uh, Scanners, I guess, uh, to, to a degree, that had this sort of, you know, mythic power thing that was very, always very destructive and resulted in death and destruction. Um, so I don't know if that was that era, um, but it wasn't screaming out to be remade. We've got um, a relatively new director, Keith Thomas, um, and a Blumhouse production could be great or it could be really average. And this has got a very low budget for this kind of thing and um, has been crucified. We get Zac Efron and um, Sidney Lemon as a husband and wife. And when they were college kids they were experimented on by this um group of people that were trying to imbue them with special powers and they all end up with you know slightly different powers sydney lemon's powers seem to be throwing plates around with telekinesis and zach efron's powers are that he can uh, manipulate anyone into doing anything so he can use his mind over other people to control them but their daughter is the problem. So they've been on the run since their daughter was born and she basically set fire to everything around her and it's quite clear what her special power is. She can set fire to things, but as she becomes uh, you know, eight years old or 10 years old or whatever she's supposed to be in this film, she starts encountering the fact that she has no control over this incredibly dangerous power she has, which lights up at school uh, due to the fact that she's bullied a lot um, we find out she's different to other kids because they can't have the internet um, because they don't want, you know, they don't want to have any sort of connection to the outside world because they're being pursued by this nefarious NSA secret laboratory world. So they make sure that they stay off the radar as much as possible. Can you hear all those birds? Shut up. Minor birds are so annoying. Um, and that's where the film really kicks off. So we've got. The paradigm of the mother, Sydney Lemon, 
wanting to train the daughter who is played very well. Ryan Kiera. Yeah, Ryan Kiera. Maybe her debut in a film. I thought she was really good, actually. She is... Um, the mother wants a trainer to control the powers. Zac Efron wants her to suppress the powers. Uh, and they're at loggerheads over how to do this. But once it blows up at school, they send um, Michael Grayes. Grayes. Michael Grayes as John Rainbird who's, I think, alluded to have Native American heritage. He's one of the people they experimented on in the program before they got to Zac Efron and his wife, and it went much worse for him. Um, so he's sent as a bounty hunter. He's sort of living with the trauma of what they did to him and his powers, and, they, and he's a ruthless and um, unstoppable killing machine. He's sent after Zac Efron, and kills the wife uh, about the halfway stage. And I mention that, even though it's a plot spoiler, because no one really seems to care. It's like Zac Efron and the daughter go off on their merry road trip and don't really seem to that bothered. Um, so it's, it's, it, it, there's a clunkiness at this stage of the movie, which I totally get. I didn't think it was terrible, apart from at times. Um, but... Um, it wasn't awful at this stage. Um, the, the one thing it's really got going for it is how short it is. Um, it doesn't hang around. It doesn't. It doesn't develop any characters, but it doesn't pad out sequences. We get through everything at such a rate of knots. So I kind of like that. If you're not going to really bother with much writing, um, they head off on a road trip to try and escape because the mum's been killed by the Rainbow character. Um, and they encounter this um, guy, and that's a, one of the first times that I actually thought this film was a lot better than critics have been saying. Guy that lives on the farm, and the daughter discovers that the mum, or his wife, is actually uh, a, a virtually in a coma, paraplegic, that has been in a car crash, um, and that she's been sitting in this chair for 20 years. We later find out that the car crash was actually him, the guy that they're staying with, drunkenly crashing and killing their son so he's got this really dark past uh, and a lot of the um these people with powers can also kind of read minds so they've got this heightened sensibility about what's going on with others uh, and we have um and i thought that whole sequence was really quite good but after that when we actually you know everyone goes back to the secret laboratory to to sort of bring an end to everything that's happened I saw that final third of the film was actually fantastic. Um, this is a film that if you really appreciate sort of like the last 15 years of horror movies, low-key, low-budget horror movies that have harked back stylistically, musically, visually to a certain 70s, 80s sensibility, and there are lots of them. Um, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but that, that feel like they could have been from that era. I think if you like a B-movie that is, you know, stylistically harking back to that era, I think this is a, a lot stronger than uh, it's being given credit for. And I found the final third, which is always a good third to make the by far the best in the film, went a bit batshit, um, went, bit, went a bit crazy, uh, and, and had some really interesting sort of stuff that happened. And um, 
the way that the denouement sort of panned out, um, almost like the road where they're on the that dystopian film, the road where they they you know the kid ends up on a beach and is sort of like carried off to safety uh, by others. And um, I actually really like that last end of the film. And um, some of the, you know, the, the, there was a, a sense of danger around the kids' powers as well. Uh, and I like the fact that the villain and the, and, and the protagonists form this bond. Um, but star of the show, undoubtedly, is uh, absolutely magnificent music by John Carpenter. Arguably the architect of the soundscape of those late 70s and um, 80s horror flicks. His synthesizer soundscapes are incredibly influential. He's been much more of a musician. I featured his last album or album before that on my radio show, um, which is only about four years ago, I think. He's developed a musical style all of his own that is hugely influential. And I sat through the credits for one of the best of those sort of late 70s synth-led horror themes for about five minutes since Goblin Suspiria main theme. It is magnificent. Um, so the music is fabulous. Um, and I actually quite enjoyed a lot of Firestarter. Dak Efron wasn't really much. He wasn't bad. He just, um, he was okay. Um, the little girl I thought was much better. Again, I can't remember her name. Right, uh, Ryan Kira Armstrong, I thought she was really good and affecting as a kid. And the uh, guy, the Michael Grayeres, if that's how you pronounce it, as Rainbird, I thought his character was really interesting and, the, and he was quite a strong performer. The people who were playing the, um, you know, the secret laboratory NSA types were never that interesting. Uh, it didn't really do it for me. But I, I walked out actually thinking, actually, I kind of like this terrible 11% film. So um, I'm going to give it a, if you, if you want to, you know, get into that whole B-movie 70s with a great soundtrack and a brilliant final third, I'm going to give Firestarter a 7.5 out of 10. Shocking, I know.